0: Welcome to the Real Truth Matters Podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM Podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks for joining us here on
1: the RTM Podcast. We're dealing with the subject of communion with God. Every Christian has a vital interest and desire to commune with the living God, but how do we do this? It's not like you can see, hear, and touch the Lord. Therefore, fellowship without the physical senses is just not natural to us. We're automatically at a loss. How do you relate to one whom you cannot see with your eyes nor hear with your ears? This is what makes prayer such a difficult thing. Oh, Did I mention the word prayer? Well, yes, I did, didn't I? You cannot discuss communion with God without discussing it. If communion is practicing relationship, then prayer is a means of practicing communion, and I would say a primary means. So let's talk about prayer, shall we? Prayer is the greatest work of the church, and it's also the most neglected work of the church we would rather do many other things than pray. Prayer can be so challenging that as Thomas Shepard, a leading New England Puritan, said, it is sometimes so with me that I will rather die than pray. John Newton, the writer of the Christian anthem Amazing Grace, wrote these words concerning prayer, I find in my own case an unaccountable backwardness to pray. I can read, I can write, I can converse with a ready will. But secret prayer is far more spiritual than any of these, and the more spiritual any duty is, the more my carnal heart is apt to start away from it. End of quote. I'm sure Newton analyzed the problem correctly and gives us insight into the difficulty of prayer, making communion infrequent. He said, and I repeat, The more spiritual any duty is, the more my carnal heart is apt to start away from it. Now, the word start is not defined the way we use the word today. In the 18th century, it was used to mean shrink back. Our word startle has this word start as its root. So Newton is saying that his remaining carnality ran away from that which is spiritual. And the more spiritual the activity, the more his carnality opposed it. This leads me to say that something is remaining in Christians that does not want communion with God. Alexander White called it an inexplicable estrangement from God. Even in God's children, some mystery of corruption remains that's yet to be removed. Sanctification on this side of heaven will not eliminate it completely. It will take the instantaneous and glorious power of God to rid us entirely of this dark mystery. And it's this lingering depravity that tries to avoid the place of prayer, which is a means of communion with our Lord. The sooner you face yourself and this resistance to prayer, the sooner you can enjoy the sweet presence of the beloved. The new birth, which is the miracle of regeneration, goes a long way in turning our downright obstinate hearts towards God. It replaces the natural enmity against God with tender affections for Him, but it doesn't rid the heart of all antagonism or antipathy. How often have you purposed to pray more? For example, you set your alarm to rise earlier to spend time in effectual prayer, but you didn't sleep well that night, and you think, well, I've got to have some more time of sleep, for fear of feeling tired that day, or you got up immediately, but suddenly the mind was overwhelmed with other tasks that you needed to do that you didn't pray because these things so weighed on you that you had to do them, or the pull of social media was so strong that you squandered your extra time of prayer surfing your Twitter or Instagram account. Now, why the pull away from prayer to these other things? these other things are not resisted. There's no pull away from them, but there is this natural avoidance to the secret place of prayer. As stated earlier, Newton is right. There is still enough carnality remaining in us that it will oppose the spiritual. The more spiritual the work, the more carnality will war against the spiritual. When it comes to prayer, most Christians simply follow the darkness that still lurks within. They follow the pathway of lace conflict. Thus, they either do not pray or they pray very little. However, this is not the chief problem. I would say it's the second most significant problem in need. The greatest need and our foremost problem is we just don't love God with all of our hearts soul mind, and strength. Our prayer problem is chiefly a love problem. Like the disciples who could not cast the demon out of the child, we have no one to blame for powerlessness but ourselves. Our prayerlessness is the blame. We cannot blame the influence of hell, for our Lord defeated those principalities, and he gave us the power to tread the serpent and scorpion nor can we blame the Lord for our spiritual poverty since he promised to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. So what's the problem if it's not the devil or the lack of heaven's help? Well, not to oversimplify, we are the problem. It's a it's a weak heart that leads to weak knees. Prayerlessness is a symptom of something much larger, a relationship void of intimacy. We suffer from a formal faith. We blindly serve a loveless morality. We give homage without heart. Christianity is to be at its core a flaming romance with the God who loves us. But we've turned it into a distant acquaintance with a God we barely like. beloved. If we are to be men and women of God, we must be a people of prayer. There's no shortcut, no other way. We must pray. If we're to be spiritual men, we must be men who pray in the Spirit. If I'm to preach with power, I must first be endued with power, and such empowerment comes from heaven through prayer. You shouldn't be surprised that the Holy Spirit filled the early church after 10 days of prayer. The missionary Hudson Taylor said, quote, But since the days before Pentecost, has the whole church ever put aside every other work and waited upon God for 10 days, that the power might be manifested? We've given too much attention to methods, machinery, and resources, and too little to the source of the power, end of quote he in Bounds in his wonderful books on prayer, said this, What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not a new organization or more novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of Prayer. Jesus told the disciples that their failure to cast the demon out of the boy was because of a lack of prayer. However, he said, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. Well, the Lord has not changed. He's as powerful now as he's always been and his desire to save has not changed either. Someone has said, we may be assured of this, the secret of all failure is our failure in secret prayer. Indeed, this is all true. Why then do we not pray and pray more? What's the problem that hinders us from overcoming any resistance to prayer and praying? The new heart that God gives his people instinctively knows that prayer is a necessity, and there is a God-given desire within that heart to pray. So what's the holdback? The answer is our failure in prayer is our failure to believe. In Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 21, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. It seems to me that if we believe that, we would pray. How about you? And then in Matthew chapter 17, after the failure of not being able to cast out the demon, Jesus had this exchange with his disciples. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. But how is it possible that we could believe with the heart unto salvation? and not believe God enough to pray and pray through to answers? Why are we more like the people of Nazareth, who didn't believe the hometown Messiah enough to bring their sick and infirm to Jesus for healing? We read in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Now, he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit, teaching. We don't pray, and therefore, we do not possess the victory. And the reason we don't pray is because we don't believe. James wrote to Christians, and this is what he said to them. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, and you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, I'm sure most of you have heard that very text before. But sometimes the more we hear something, the less we understand it and the more we ignore it. So, what did James mean, you do not have because you do not ask? And then he turns around and says that what they did ask for, they didn't receive. They don't receive answers to prayer because they don't pray and they pray and don't receive answers. That's a strange dichotomy. Well, I think James sees his statements as a strange contrast, so he quickly adds two explanatory clauses. Because you ask amiss, and you may spend it on your pleasures. These two clauses explain that the problem with the Christians to whom James Was writing is that their remaining corruption, which the Bible calls the flesh, is predominantly in control. They didn't trust God entirely because they trusted in their own desires and plans. They deduced that they, better than the Lord, knew the way to pleasure and joy. And faith in oneself and faith in God cannot coexist simultaneously and both be in control. You either trust God or you trust you, and you either trust God completely, or you don't trust Him at all. You cannot trust that God can, for the most part, get the job done, but you need to add a helping hand. Otherwise, it just won't happen without your additional service. No, no, that is not biblical faith. Thus, what James is rebuking in these saints is the fact that their flesh was dominating and motivating them. It avoided prayer, and therefore they didn't receive answers to their prayers, answers they needed. And when they did pray, they prayed carnal prayers for things that were not required. Now, this proves that there remains in us an evil antagonism to prayer, the kind of spiritual prayer that puts us in holy communion with the Lord. So we're back to the same question, aren't we? How is it possible that we could believe with the heart unto salvation and not believe God enough to pray and pray through to the answer? Well, to answer that, let's examine the faith of the apostles before the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus repeatedly. Jesus referred to the faith of his disciples as little faith. Oh, you of little faith was his constant refrain. Now, we know the disciples had genuine faith. Jesus does not deny this. His words, little faith, acknowledges this fact. They had faith, just not much of it. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. He believed this to the point that he dropped his vocation and sole source of income to follow the Lord. His faith is evident in his actions. He had faith, genuine faith, and so did the other disciples with the exception of Judas Iscariot. But their faith was, for the most part, limited to the messiahship of Jesus thus for example confidence in god's ability and willingness to supply daily provision was riddled with unbelief that's why jesus has to say to them in matthew 6:30 now if god so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow's thrown into the oven will he not much more clothe you o oh, you of little faith jesus acknowledged that their faith was weak in this area They struggled with faith when they mistakenly thought Jesus was asking about bread when he said to them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Jesus was not talking about bread, physical bread, and he summarizes their problem as a faith issue. Oh, you of little faith, why did you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Peter sinks after walking on the water. And Jesus says, Peter's sinking was a problem of small faith. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, what is astounding about the twelve disciples was all the time they spent with Christ. And yet their faith did not increase. Now, this is astounding for this fact faith normally rises and falls on how well. The person believing keeps their focus on the Lord and correctly understands what they're seeing. That's why the Lord seems surprised by their weak faith. He himself is overwhelmed by their lack of faith in what he had told them about his being one with the Father. If they had seen him, they had seen the Father. So he demands an answer from Philip, have I been with you so long? And yet you've not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? You see, the issue is an issue of faith. I think an accurate comparison exists between the weak faith of the disciples and the weak faith of most Christians today. It's this weak faith that hampers our prayer lives. The disciples' faith focused on the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, but it didn't seem to go much beyond that in precisely the same way most Christians seem to have enough faith to believe that Jesus is the Savior. They have trusted him for the forgiveness of sin and trusted him for eternal life. However, to trust him for more than that exposes that their faith is little. Jesus linked faith to understanding. Now, this is critical. Please listen. It is faith that is the Spirit's organ of sight and hearing. That is why in Mark's gospel, Jesus relates the disciples' little faith to their understanding. Listen to what the scripture says. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Matthew chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. The size of their faith was in proportion to their understanding of what he said, and more importantly, who he was. Their understanding was so little, therefore their faith was little also. These men were exposed to so much information and knowledge of the Savior firsthand. They lived with him. They watched him behave himself in every scenario and circumstance. They heard his amazing sermons as he preached to the multitudes. But they also had his private tutoring. So much of his time was in private teaching to these twelve men. And yet they did not grow in understanding at least, not very much. And in the end, one betrayed him, one denied him, and all forsook him. Now why is this so incredible? Because they could see firsthand the glory, and the biblical way is that the more you see of God and His glory, your understanding of God increases, and therefore faith increases. Isn't this so similar to us today? We're awash in biblical teaching and information. No generation since the apostles has had so much wealth of biblical knowledge as we do, and yet, With all that knowledge, we seem to have so little faith. We cannot seem to believe God for much more than our eternal destiny. We don't have because we do not ask, and when we ask, we ask for the wrong things. We have much understanding, but still little faith. So the problem must be there's a difference between intellectual understanding and Spiritual understanding. Why do you have a spiritual understanding of your salvation so that you personally know the forgiveness of sin and the love of the Savior for you? Well, it's because the Lord opened your eyes and made you to see. It seems to me we should have enough courage to admit that the same is needed in other areas of our lives so that faith may reign in those areas. We need the Lord to open our hearts' understanding in other parts of our lives so that we can live by faith in those areas. In the next few episodes, we will address these things and with God's help, address how we can deal with our little faith and understanding. In today's broadcast, I wanted to emphasize this hindrance and bring it to your attention because that's half the battle. Knowing the root cause is precisely what the physician wants to diagnose. You can't prescribe the remedy until the source of the ailment is known. Communion with God is heavily dependent upon your prayer life, and your prayer life depends on your faith, and your faith depends on understanding, that is, spiritual understanding. But we must know and believe that at least one thing stands in our way to resist our enlightenment. Oh, yes, there are external enemies to our communion with God. That's absolutely for sure. But the greatest of these is our own flesh. That dark mystery of internal resistance to fellowship with God, it seems almost unbelievable. There's nothing like it. I can experience and enjoy communion with God, and it is in every way a foretaste of glory divine. It so lifts my spirit to soar in that spiritual realm where God is, and I feel like I could live here forever. I don't want it to stop. I don't want to come down off the mountain. I'm like Peter of old, desiring to build a tabernacle for God and me to abide. However, entering back into the stream and tide of the world, it's not long before that internal resistance is vigorously working against me, working against me, entering back into that glorious communion. And since we are both material and spirit beings, we must not underestimate the strong appeal of the material yearnings of these bodies and minds. The longing for security and comfort is so enormous and significantly impacts our desire for communion with God. Again, the Christian does desire this communion, but the physical works against it. The self-denial of these creature comforts is not always easy, and any victory thought to be gained must not be assumed that it will remain. The flesh is just simply unrelenting like a baby. The natural desires rear up, and immediately the crying starts. You know you need to pray, and there's a legitimate desire to seclude yourself in prayer to seek the Lord, but there is this other desire for some earthly pleasure, comfort. It isn't an evil desire at all. It could be as simple as wanting to enjoy the beauty of the day by going outside, taking a walk, or riding your bike instead of praying, or it may be a strong desire to Finish a book that you've really enjoyed rather than pray. Self-denial requires you to discern correctly if it's in the will of God for you to satisfy this natural and even good desire now or later. And if not, then you must weigh the desire against the satisfaction of communion with God. And that's what the Bible means when it says, count the cost. We have to deal with this built-in tendency, and we must know how to deal with it. And so, in the upcoming episodes, we're going to give you the biblical and proactive means to overcome that attitude that would say, as the Puritan Thomas Shepard, it is sometimes so with me that I will rather die than pray. Well, that's all the time we have today. If you have any questions, just send us an email to web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web, realtruthmatters.com. And please include your name. We'll not use your full name or when we read your question, but we do want your name for this reason. One special questioner will receive a signed copy of my new book, The Fight of Faith. Well, on behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters Ministries, thank you for tuning in and may the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.